Many people now associate Boston with Irish Catholic heritage, with a robust Italian-American community. But there was a time when Catholics were not welcome in the city. They were the minority underdogs. Mistrust, rumors, and old-world prejudices would lead to an incident that left a deep scar in Massachusetts history, an open wound that remained in place for decades as a reminder. But some of the broken pieces of this tragedy were turned into symbols of victory for a community determined to stand for itself and carve out a place in America. This is Garth in the Lost Cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts. Sit back and hear a tale of the Ursuline convent burning. All right, here we go. Lost Massachusetts. I am punching in an address. Not quite an address, but an intersection um, in Somerville, Massachusetts. And not every Lost Massachusetts excursion is in the woods or in some hidden place. A lot of these places are right in front of us and we don't know why they're there we don't notice them we don't know the whole history behind them and but that's what makes it interesting i mean even a densely populated neighborhood was something else before it was a densely populated neighborhood and this is what this is all about it's about looking at what is underneath and buried so there's lots of hazards in looking for lost places. Uh, the hazard today was going from Sturro Drive to 93 to 38. And uh, it, 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 it's not for the squeamish. And there are plenty of people who drive it every day, and it's not a big deal. Um, but if you're not somebody who's used to this type of traffic, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's no picnic. So I was driving on Broadway in East Somerville, and all the all the side streets in this area, historic district, are named after U.S. states: Wisconsin, Michigan, etc. And I'm actually looking for here it is now. I'm turning on Illinois Avenue. So here's the next hazard of this particular excursion: um, the parking is a nightmare in this area. And, but I have luckily managed to find the one non-resident parking space that is a metered space, but the meter is off on Sundays. So I do have this, it's a non-street cleaning, blah, blah, blah. Okay, all right. It looks like I'm good for a little while, but just keep those, these things in mind. So this is a very busy, very dense residential neighborhood. The main street, Broadway, has a lot of uh, really great restaurants and shops and whatnot. Um, see tons of people out walking with their kids and stuff. A lot of great tree-lined streets. But this is none of this was here in 1830. This was a completely different landscape. All of these streets, all of these houses have all been put on top of several different layers 
of different uh, periods of local history. King Henry VIII wanted England to separate from the Catholic Church, mostly because the Church would not grant him a divorce, but also generally to establish independence from Rome, which often held sway over various European governments. One could not become ruler of a nation without the Church's approval. England created its own Church, which was different from the Protestantism championed by Martin Luther and John Calvin. Europe was in the midst of religious upheaval, transformation, and reformation. Out of this upheaval grew even newer religious societies that wanted nothing to do with the old order. These people sought to create a new order in the new world, free of what they considered to be the corruption of Europe. In Massachusetts and elsewhere, these people found a place where their new vision of a society could take shape. The final break with Europe came with the revolution. America was now its own distinct society that celebrated its freedom from the old world. But the success of a growing American society meant that many Europeans associated with old world thinking and religion would also come to celebrate their freedom. In 1830s Boston, the new version of America was often built from the waves of Irish immigrants who were feared and mistrusted by Boston's Protestant majority. Within Boston's rapidly growing Catholic population came a radical new idea, the belief that women and girls should be educated. This is Garth from Lost, Massachusetts. Uh, today I'm sitting with Eileen, who is a graduate of an Ursuline school. And um, I will let Eileen tell you all a little bit about the school she went to and where it was. Thanks, Garth. Um, so I went to an Ursuline school in New Rochelle, New York. And um, it was definitely a Catholic school. Um, but one of the things that was came across really strongly was that it was a school for ed to be education, college preparatory. Um, it was expected um, that you were there to learn. And it was all, all girls. And I believe believe all the Ursuline schools are all girls um, because it was the order was started uh, under the guise of educating women and as we all know in the past sometimes educating women wasn't something that was approved or um, encouraged by societies and so in this order founded by Angela Marici, St. Angela. She was very focused on educating the impoverished girls that she saw around her uh, hometown. Angela Marici was born in 1747 in a small town in Lombardy, which is now part of Italy. She was orphaned at the age of 10 a series of mystic visions led her to a life of religious dedication and later to create a society of sisters dedicated to St. Ursula. The mission of the order was to educate poor women in an effort to improve the general welfare of families 
and society as an extension. In 1822, seven Ursuline sisters, who had been trained in Quebec, arrived in Boston to organize a convent on a hill in Charlestown, a section that is now Somerville. The Bishop of Boston helped construct a brick school on top of the hill. They created exquisite gardens on the 24-acre lot and surrounded it with a high wooden fence to give the nuns and their potential students the privacy and seclusion they needed for a proper education. It was a beautiful shining building that rose like a palace above the town around it. While it was built to support Boston's growing Irish Catholic community, wealthy Protestant families saw the opportunity to educate their own daughters at St. Ursuline's. With funding from these more established families, the convent began to flourish. It was their success and the growth of Boston's Irish community that fueled resentment and rumor among the convent's neighbors. At first there was goodwill, as the local bricklayers provided labor for the building of the convent. But now with the work ended, and the result hidden behind a wall, they wondered at the mysterious place full of women. Some began to believe that the convent was a base for the Catholic takeover of the New World. Others were convinced that the good Protestant girls being educated were actually being converted to Catholicism. Rumors circulated that women were being held inside against their will, being tortured, murdered, their bodies hidden deep beneath the convent in secret evil chambers. Preachers on street corners spoke out against the convent. Angry tavern drinkers swore they knew the details of the evil goings-on behind the walls. The summer of 1834 was unbearably hot in Boston. Tempers flared. People could not sleep. In the heat of one night in August, the unfounded neighborhood rumors began to take shape when one of the girls allegedly climbed over the walls and rushed to a neighbor's house seeking refuge. She claimed mistreatment. But the Bishop of Boston found her and managed to convince her to return to St. Ursuline's. The story about this woman who escaped the convent, but then was hastily returned to it, began to spread throughout the neighborhood. The gossips were sure women were being held prisoner, and now they had proof. A mob of unemployed laborers, drunken sailors on leave, and street urchins who were always looking for trouble gathered outside the gates of the convent and demanded entry in order to investigate and free the prisoners within. The mother superior of St. Ursuline's was having none of it, and she threatened the mob itself if they didn't go away. She was a representative of their patron saint and drew upon that courage. But who was the patron saint herself? The legend of St. Ursula goes back to the 4th century. Ursula was a British Christian princess who was being forced to marry a pagan king. She never made it to the wedding. A miraculous storm drove her ship to the coast of France along with her 10,000 handmaidens. From there, Ursula decided to lead a religious pilgrimage to Rome. Unfortunately, they were captured by an invading Hun army all of Ursula's followers were beheaded, and Ursula herself 
was personally shot and killed with an arrow by the Hun's leader. Now it seemed the story of Ursula was about to be played out again as a different kind of Hunnic horde was descending on the convent in Charlestown. The following account of what happened next is read from Fire and Roses, The Burning of the Charlestown Convent, 1834, by Nancy Schultz. When Mother Superior rejected the demands, someone in the crowd fired two gunshots as a warning. At 11 o'clock, the crowd began to tear down the convent fence and lit a bonfire of fencing and tar barrels. Its light was visible for miles around. Local church bells began to peel out the signal for fire, and engine companies from Charlestown and Boston raced to the scene, but when they arrived, they just stood and watched. Rioters raced up the hill towards the convent. Stones and bricks shattered the rows of windows in the three-story building and its adjoining wings. A farmhand grabbed a stake to batter the front door, and as the rioters burst into the building, Mother Superior ordered the nuns to take the children out of the back entrance into the garden. By midnight, the rioters had penetrated to the heart of the cloister. Some of them broke up furniture and heaped it in the center of the large assembly room. Others gleefully hurled musical instruments out the windows, violins, harps, even pianos. Amid cheers and jeers, the Bible, the ornaments of the altar, and the cross were tossed on the pyre with their torches. The rioters ignited a fire, and the firemen outside stood idly by. The nuns and the girls had made it to safety, about a half a mile away, and by 1.30 in the morning they could see that the entire building was engulfed in flames. Some of the rioters, truly believing the rumors that girls had been murdered in the convent, were searching for the remains. They managed to break their way into the crypt, and what they found were the coffins for seven deceased nuns who were not murdered at all. Regardless, they turned the coffins open and emptied the remains out. One of the rioters bashed in the skull of a deceased nun, and gruesomely, some of the other ones collected her teeth as souvenirs. They went on to destroy every building in the complex. The barn, the stables, the ice house, everything. But even though the convent lay in ruins by the dawn, they weren't done. The riders came back the next day to completely destroy the gardens that surrounded the convent. They tore up flowers, tore up vegetables, chopped down trees in an orchard, they pulled down vines of grapes. Nothing was spared. To add insult to injury, hardly any of the rioters were ever charged with a crime. Only one of them was convicted, and he barely served any time. So at the corner of Broadway in Illinois, there is a uh, public library, Somerville Public Library. It's actually called the Gold Memorial, Gold Star Memorial Library. And here at the Gold Star Memorial Library, on the side, 
there is a small park with a couple of benches. And inside the park, facing out towards the corner of the street, there is a stone here that was erected by the Knights of Columbus. And it says, Plowed Hill, fortified and bombarded in 1775 to 1776. This is the site of the Ursuline Convent, founded in 1820 and opened in 1826, burned in 1834. The hill dug down in 1875 to 1897. This is erected by the Mount Benedict Council of the Knights of Columbus, Council number 75. But that is all that is here. That is all that is here marking this spot. And the landscape would have been completely different at that time. So that was the, that was the actual site of the convent. But now I'm getting back in the car and I'm heading to a second location that's in downtown Boston. Uh, it's connected to the site and I'll explain what it is when we get there. But for now, I'm giving up my precious, perfect parking space. And somebody who comes up this street is going to be extremely happy that I've left. The ruins of St. Ursuline stood for over 40 years. The crumbling edifice loomed on the hilltop as a dark, constant reminder. The church made many attempts to get the city of Boston to pay for the damage, but they were all denied. Some of the rioters held an annual gruesome parade in the neighborhood where they carried an effigy of the Mother Superior through the streets and sang anti-Catholic songs. The Mother Superior herself and the Ursuline nuns had returned to Quebec in seeming obscurity. Tensions and conflict between Protestant and Catholic Boston only worsened. Three years after the fire, an Irish funeral procession was halted by a volunteer fire department. A brawl ensued and became a massive street battle that required the state militia to be called out by the governor. The violence and dark events did nothing to prevent Boston's Irish community from growing larger and larger. By 1860, the main Catholic cathedral on Franklin Street in Boston was too small to tend to parishioners. As plans were drawn to replace the cathedral with a new structure, the concept was to create a building that was larger and taller than any other Protestant church in Boston. For almost 100 years, it was the largest church of any kind in New England. It was intended to be a symbol of the community's resilience and a statement that it would not be intimidated. As the cathedral in Boston's south end was being completed, the ruins of St. Ursuline were finally being knocked down. Bricks were salvaged from the destroyed building and transported to the new cathedral's construction. The old bricks were incorporated in the massive archway vestibule of the new cathedral, and in 1875 the doors opened to the community, reborn from the ashes. Directions to the two sites of the Ursuline Convent. The site of the Ursuline Convent is next to the Somerville Public Library East Branch at 115 Broadway at the intersection of Illinois Street. The dedication is in a small gated garden on the side. If you're not comfortable driving in Boston's crazy traffic, 
You can take Route 2 to Route 3, then Route 16, and then turn onto Powder House Boulevard in Somerville, which turns into Broadway at the Rotary. What's a Rotary, you say? Maybe the highway is actually better. The Cathedral of the Holy Cross is at 1400 Washington Street in the South End. You can walk right up to the main entrance and see the old bricks from the convent in the arch. Unfortunately, it's not marked in any way on the outside. Enjoy your explorations. Stenstown. Stenstown, Mass. That's S-T-E-N-S-T-O-N. Never heard of Stenstown, Mass? No one else has either. But there it is on an 1807 French map in the center of Middlesex County, somewhere between Andover, Lynn, Marlborough, and Lancaster. It's a bizarre unknown location, and there are no roads on the map leading to it. It's just floating there in space. Is it a misspelling, mispronunciation, misunderstanding? Or was it a real place that history swept away? It could also be a so-called paper town. Paper towns or paper streets are fictitious locations put on maps intentionally as copyright protection. The map maker puts some bogus name on a map, and if that name shows up on someone else's map, they know their map has been copied. I'm putting this mystery out there for people to think about and discuss. I have my own ideas about it. Please go to Lost Massachusetts on Instagram to see an image of Stenstown on the map. The original map is part of the David Rumsey map collection. So join the mystery and help us out. Thank you for joining us to hear this tragic tale that later became a beacon of hope. In our next Lost Massachusetts adventure, we're going to find and travel down a true lost highway. Until then, this is Garth in the lost cabin somewhere in rural Massachusetts saying, it's always 1928 somewhere. Hey, if you like the show for some reason, there are lots of ways you can join the fun or get a hold of us. You can message Lost Mass through the podcast apps on Anchor. There's a voice option. Or you can go to lostmassachusetts.com and subscribe to our blog or use the various methods there to contact us. If you go to lostmassachusetts.com, you can also sign up to get a postcard from a lost place and find out where to send us a lost postcard too. Also go to Lost Massachusetts at uh, Instagram for photos and other details. We will do our best to respond to comments uh, directly uh, as well as within the show. You might hear um, your own comment. That's fun.